Thank you, Craig. It's always uh, it's always encouraging, no matter what, to hear about the various ways in which God's word and His work is going forward. I really think uh, it's important for us to even broaden our understanding and and our uh, scope of knowledge about the various ways and all the different peoples through whom God is uh, doing this amazing work of reaching the world through His. Uh, through his good news, through the gospel. Uh, so this morning, we are going to be returning to our study in the gospel of Luke. And if you have a way of following along or a, in a Bible or a Bible app, if you want to head over to Luke chapter 4, please. Last week, we read about Jesus visiting his hometown. He went back to Nazareth and uh, he had a, uh, an experience there that was very telling about his ministry uh, at all. Nazareth, if you remember, was a really small, nothing, nobody town. It was this tiny little village. It's a big city now because of Jesus and the history of that. But at that time, it was highly insignificant. Most people probably wouldn't have even heard of it uh, at that time. A small little village just outside of Jerusalem to the west. He, uh, He went home and he taught in their synagogue. And it said in the account there that he was well-received at first. Everybody was like, this is pretty amazing what he's able to do. But then they figured out what his message really was. Uh, (laughs) They realized that this was not a call to take up arms against the Romans. This was a a message that was saying that God's grace was going to be uh, for everybody, uh, for all people. And so when the reality of his message dawned on him, their response was to lovingly try to kill him. So we considered some ways in which we can avoid falling into that same trap of being scandalized by God's grace, because it's very easy for us to develop uh, our own system of determination of who's in and who's out, who God will have mercy on and who God won't. Uh, And we we contemplated that at at some length last week. Now, today, we're going to get a snapshot of Jesus's ministry in the Galilean region. Galilee was a a region to the north of Jerusalem. It was not known for its spirituality. Uh, There was a large Gentile population in that region as well, but this is where Jesus chose to set up shop. And we're going to see some examples of Jesus' teaching, uh, setting people free from demonic influences and healing people. And that pretty much comprises what it is that Jesus goes about doing. For three and a half years. That's pretty much a a snapshot of his ministry at all. And I believe these are are records of of actual healings and actual miracles. But I'm also someone who believes that these sorts of things can happen today. Still happen today if God wants to do that. But I also think that Jesus' mission was more than just setting up a medical clinic. To see to it that a few people got better. All of his miracles in some way, are visual representations of the spiritual reality that Jesus came to establish. In in a real sense, the miracles that Jesus does pulls back the curtain on the the cosmic forces at work within this created order and in in this world. We're going to look at this conflict between God's authority and the power of evil that, that still seems present 
in, in this broken place. So we're going to consider some things about God's authority this morning and what it means to us as followers of Jesus, as those who claim him as our Lord, as those who are part of his kingdom. So if you're there in Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 31. It says, Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and he taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. There, too, the people were amazed at his teaching, for he spoke with authority. So we talked last week about the synagogue system in the ancient Israel context. Like we don't know exactly when that started, but it certainly was the pattern for Israel in the first century. And it continues on, especially after the temple has been destroyed uh, within Jewish life. And here we see that Jesus continues this practice of reading and then teaching in their synagogues. And we don't know exactly what he was teaching. Luke doesn't share that with us, but I think it's very likely that he's teaching and sharing the exact same things that he did in Nazareth. It's, it's likely that Jesus had a few set things that he was regularly sharing with the peoples, and that's what he would do. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he was coming up with something every week that he had to try to explain to everybody, but he had a message. We, we know in Mark's gospel that he went around saying that, you know, encouraging people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was near. So, it's more than likely that Jesus is going around to the synagogues reading from these same passages and, and telling them, listen, this time is at hand. What God promised he was going to do in bringing deliverance is happening right now and it's happening through him. But as I said, Luke doesn't actually tell us exactly what he taught. What he does tell us is the reaction to his teaching. The people were amazed at his teaching. And so this gives us an opportunity here to, to step into the sandals of the people that were there listening to this to this young rabbi who's come to town from, you know, what, what Hicksville did he say he was from again? Where, where is he from? Where did he get his education? What rabbi did he, he study under? You could even imagine a little bit of cynicism beginning to kind of creep into people's expectations about him. You go to Sabbath service and, and all of a sudden here's this guy that's coming in and, and they're looking at it thinking, you know, we're, we're from Capernaum. We're a bigger city. We're a little more sophisticated than, than this. What's Hicksville think he's going to teach us? But then he reads and he teaches and, and it captivates people. Once again, it, 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 everything turns to amazement. And the word in the Greek literally means that they're shocked or you could say stunned by what he's saying. Why? Why were they stunned like this? Because it says he spoke with authority. But even there, we got to wonder, what's that mean? Like authority, like how, do, how are they using that term? If I say that so-and-so is an authority on a subject, what do we mean by that normally? An expert. There's somebody who's an expert in that. So is that what they're saying? Is that what they're amazed at? He's like such an expert at this? Or was he a, 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 exhibiting authority like an authoritarian? Was he coming in and yelling and pounding on the pulpit and getting angry with us? Here's the thing that we, we can understand about this, how we can kind of get at the bottom of what this means when he's talking about authority. The rabbis of Jesus' day would come in and they would reinforce the traditions that had been passed down to them for a long period of time. They would quote the Torah and then they would quote the respected leaders who had taught them about the Torah uh, and, 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 and how it applied to life or what it meant. And, and, and that is how they would cite authority on a matter. Very much like the way a lawyer will point to a different law case and use that as a precedent for how that people should come to a, 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 a conclusion about something. The rabbis of that time and the scribes would cite theological precedent 
by quoting respected rabbis as the basis for their doctrine. So we believe this and we act this way because Rabbi so-and-so said this. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus would come in and he would speak for himself. And we know this is how he did this because we go to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount, one, one of the more complete sermons that Jesus provided. And we saw how he did that. You know, how he went through the Beatitudes or, or, or things like that. And then he said, you, you've heard it said, this is what you were taught, that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemy. And Jesus said, but I say to you, Love your enemies. He wasn't citing another rabbi. He wasn't quoting somebody else to prove that or any other authority. He actually established his own authority to speak about these issues. I am speaking this on my own. And that was stunning to people. It would be stunning to people to this day, I believe. This is part of why Luke is actually writing this account of Jesus. Because as a historian... He's letting us know that this rabbi is different, that, that Luke is recording this for us because what this rabbi said and what this rabbi did is still powerful to Luke's day because Luke wasn't there when these things happened, still powerful in our day because we certainly weren't there when it happened. What I believe we learn from this is that the authority of God's kingdom is revealed in the teachings of Christ. One of the things that I really believe God prompted me about um, uh, as a practice that we started several years ago, uh, that it was important for us to keep coming back to the Gospels and the, the teachings and the stories about Jesus. We've gone through most of the Gospel, I think all of them now, at least twice. Uh, but but here's my thinking on this. For as, as long as, as I have... Um, uh, uh, I'm not sure what's happening up here, (laughs) but uh, can we not do that? There we go. (laughs) Um, So we're Jesus' followers, and, and I feel like it's very important for us to be familiar, to be as familiar as we can be with Jesus' teachings and what his values are and how it is that he carried himself. Because if we're following him, it's important for us to know these things. I just have felt for a while now, for as long as I have whatever influence I might have, uh, to, to keep pointing us back to him. I feel like it's a terrible thing, especially some of the things that I've seen happen within the church lately when Christians are molded more by their favorite niche political podcast or pundits or politicians than by our Savior, Jesus. I, I fear sometimes that what I hear sounds a lot more like Rush Limbaugh than it does Jesus Christ. And that's a problem, guys. That's a problem when we are followers not of Limbaugh, but of Jesus. And there's a huge distinction there when you really pay attention to it. The question that hangs in the air of our society today, that hung in the air in Luke's society, was what makes Jesus so special? Isn't this just another religious teacher among all the religions of the world? What's, what's so special? Why is his message of any sort of importance? And that's where I think it's a good idea just to let Jesus speak for himself. I mean, we can try, and the church, the church has certainly tried to develop a rationalist, reductionist argument for our faith, but we end up approaching our faith that way then like, like, like scientific detectives. We, we gather up the historic evidence and we find uh, and construct the, the most 
rational argument that we can to formulate a defense for why it is we believe what we believe. And I'm not, you know, denigrating the work of apologetics to that degree, but I just believe there's something beyond mere rationality here when it comes to Christ's authority being revealed. I believe there's an authority that gets revealed when we just allow Jesus the space to, to speak for himself by absorbing what he taught and lived and sacrificed and then imitating that into the world where we live. The first time that we taught through the Gospel of Luke, it's been over 10 years uh, ago, uh, my in-laws had just moved into the area. Uh, that's, you know, I've told you this story before, but uh, you know, teaching through Luke, I can't help but but think back on that, that when my, when my, when Robbie's parents moved here, uh, they didn't identify as Christians at all. I mean, at all. Uh, in fact, in our conversations, they had a lot of misgivings with what little they knew about Christianity or, or the Christian faith. But, you know, out of politeness, the, trying to, you know, show support for their daughter, Robbie, and her weird husband, they started coming to Eastgate. You know, they just want to be nice and, and be here for us. And so they came just as we started teaching through this gospel of Luke. Now, I want you to know that Robbie and I never witnessed to her parents in any sort of traditional sense. We never handed them tracts or, you know, tried to put a Bible verse in their food or something like that. Uh, we'd answer questions if they, if they had them, but we never prompted them on anything. I, I promise you, we never actually tried to, to push any, anything or, or pressure them to accept or believe anything. But they kept coming on Sunday mornings and listening to Luke's story about Jesus. And I want you to know that by the end of that study, they both had acknowledged Jesus as their Savior and received salvation from him. Not through Robbie and I trying to prompt anything from them, but simply because they heard his word. They heard Jesus talking. They saw his example. When Jesus talks, it actually startles and rattles people. And maybe we can even learn a lesson from this. I don't know. Maybe to let Jesus talk more and for us to argue less. I don't know. It's a, it's a thought. Either way. We'll keep reading. Verse 33. Once when he was in the synagogue, a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, began shouting at Jesus, Go away! Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the demon threw the man to the floor as the crowd watched, and then it came out of him without hurting him further. Amazed, the people exclaimed, What authority and power this man's words possess! Even evil spirits obey him, and they flee at his command. The news about Jesus spread through every village in the entire region. Okay, so the story takes a turn for the bizarre here. In the middle of Jesus trying to teach, uh, a guy starts yelling, and Luke identifies him as a demonized person. And I, you know, I have so many unanswered questions uh, about this section here. Did this guy behave normally up till that moment, and then this uh, erupted? Or was he always just a little off? And, And if that's true then that tells me a lot about the synagogue community and, 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 and how patient uh, the people were and, and careful of, uh, of those that were among them. 
Uh, or is this Luke's critique of the synagogue saying, here you are thinking that you are God's people and the devil's right in the midst of you? I don't know. There's no way of knowing. I could have used a few more details, but, you know, that's Luke. He, he gives the details he's interested in. All through the Bible's narrative, we find descriptions of a lot of different kinds of spiritual beings uh, that are at work in unseen ways. And and in the Bible, their presence and their activity is just uh, has just stated without any qualification and really without much explanation behind any of it. Uh, I would say that if you're a person who's like me, who gets a little uncomfortable with this subject, you might be interested in looking into studies done by Michael Heiser. He is an Old Testament scholar who's written extensively on this subject. He's got a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast, if you like podcasts. He discusses this stuff quite a bit. It's really interesting. He's also got a book called The Unseen Realm, which is a good introductory uh, 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 introduction to this kind of subject matter, if you're not familiar with it at all. Here's the thing. What I like about him, I, I know, I'll be honest, I've read quite a bit of it. I've listened to his podcast. I don't track with him on everything on this, but it's great food for thought. And I love how orthodox and and how sober he is in approaching this subject matter. And he certainly, it's not that he's uh, denying, he's certainly affirming the reality of that. But he does so in a, in a very um, maybe tethered way that I like. Because here's the thing. I mean, you know my story. I had my time in the charismatic church and... And man, there were demons behind everything in, in that context. I mean, you know, we, it was our joke. We don't believe there's a demon behind every bush. We believe there's at least 12. Uh, and, and it was such an obsession that it really led us to behave more like like superstitious animists more than Christians. And, and I certainly don't believe that was ever God's intent for us to be paralyzed with fear or superstitious in some way. So I'm not comfortable with that sort of an emphasis but Heiser traces, you know, these concepts of supernatural beings, including demons throughout the ancient Old Testament texts, which lead up to the New Testament, which all of that would have been informing Jesus's uh, listeners uh, of his day. The thing is, you know, I think there's two extremes uh, about this subject. Uh, one, as I said, that there's this almost superstitious obsession with the unseen realm and wanting to figure out what the devil is up to. And the other is the post-Enlightenment Westerner who kind of rolls their eyes at the idea of evil spirits. Oh, okay, you primitive, I get it now. I, I just think there's a lot of hubris in our modern world at so quickly dismissing everything that can't be empirically explained. But I'm also someone who believes that that unseen forces can and, and do influence, maybe even possess people. However, I don't believe demonic forces should ever be our emphasis as a church because according to Colossians 2.15, and you can go look that up, those things were stripped of their power by Jesus' death on the cross. That changed things radically. So when we look at the biblical narratives, things have changed because of what took place historically in Christ's death. And that changes how it is that we interact with the world around us. No matter how you understand demons and their influence. Remember that these accounts of miracles are visual representations that reveal the nature of God's sovereign activity at work in this world. So beyond just the event itself, there's a lesson that's trying to be communicated through what happens here in the synagogue with this demonized man. And I think this is showing us 
that the authority of God's kingdom challenges and overcomes what is evil in this world. God's kingdom invades this earth to disrupt the status quo of those things that enslave and dehumanize us. And that's the work of evil in this world. This demonic force states clearly who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus is doing. He's interfering and ultimately destroying its work. So this tells us then something, that like in those times when we're worshiping or when we come to God's word and and we get those gut punch moments of conviction, this is what's happening, like what we see happening in the synagogue. Now, I don't mean that that means we have a demon or that we're possessed. It just means that Jesus is displacing those things that hinder us and hold us back from wholeness. This is Jesus at work in our lives, in those uncomfortable moments when we're convicted by something. He's freeing us from the dehumanizing patterns of our lives to bring us into the life that he intended for us. And those feelings are uncomfortable. I'm certainly someone who's very familiar with being convicted by the Holy Spirit about things happening in my lives. But they are so beneficial if we'll allow them to be. This guy went through a rough moment there of torment and turmoil, ended up on the ground. But when it was over, he was hurt no further. He was dehumanized no more. If we'll yield to that conviction and allow Jesus to transform our thoughts and our actions, man, there's great benefit to that. I love how this goes down, though. Jesus, he didn't have a conversation with this thing. Another thing that makes me think this should not be our emphasis he just, you know, the, 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 the demonic force calls Jesus out. Basically, he's saying, listen, this Hicksville thing doesn't fool me, Jesus from two egg. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus cuts him off and just says, scram. Now, in Jesus' day, the rabbis who would perform exorcisms had to go through all kinds of rigmarole. There were special accoutrements needed, and they had to do so many different chants and different things. Here, Jesus, again, is displaying this unique authority, and that he just says, beat it, and the thing is gone. No elaborate uh, exorcism rituals. And I really think that's the point, that if we'll intentionally draw close to Jesus and his word. Draw close to Jesus in, in, in who it is that, that he represents himself to be through this word uh, and allow that word to have its work in our lives, to listen to it, to see it, and to determine to emulate who he is and to live like he lived. You know, we don't have to get all wound up looking for demonic influences or whatever. When we just come under the authority of God's kingdom, the presence of Christ begins to displace all that stuff from our lives. You see what I'm saying in that? So it's not a matter of trying to chase down the devil and figure out what he's doing. It's a matter of reaching out to Jesus and submitting and yielding to what he's doing. So once again, this event stuns people and they marvel at the extent of his authority. And the story continues then, verse 38. After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home. This is Simon Peter, he'll later be called that, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and prepared a meal for them. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Many were possessed by demons, and the demons came out at his command, shouting, You're the Son of God, but because 
they knew he, but because they knew he was the Messiah, he rebuked them and refused to let them speak. What an interesting detail. Jesus clearly didn't want his Messiahship announced by demons. And I don't know exactly what to make of that, but it's, it's something definitely to take note of. Early the next morning, Jesus went out to an isolated place. The crowd searched everywhere for him. And when they finally found him, they begged him not to leave them. But he replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that's why I was sent. And so he continued to travel around preaching in synagogues throughout Judea. So our story moves from the public religious setting of the synagogue to the private and domestic realm of Peter's home and family uh, and out then even to the to the desolate areas where there were very few people. In the synagogue, it's a man who's set free. It's a man who's set free. In Peter's house, it's a woman who is healed. And the chapter finishes off with Jesus traveling all over, cutting across spheres of life and people, and, and in a real sense, uniting all of these people, all these various people uh, under God's uh, reign. And I want to focus on Peter's mother-in-law, because that's a powerful bit of the story to me. Jesus quietly confronts an illness that she has, and he restores this woman's health. And and that's beautiful. But there's something else in this. In verse 39, in the NLT, it says she prepared a meal for them, which in the Greek, it says she served them. It may have included that, but but it's important that we keep that, that terminology in place. She served them. Now, I realize that our 21st century ears hear this and we think right away, okay, there's a perfect example of a woman caught in a patriarchal system where serving a man is her sole identity and purpose uh, in life. And, you know, we could be thinking, come on, Peter, (laughs) this woman was sick. Couldn't you just order a pizza or something? Why are you letting her do this? And those, listen, they're valid considerations, but it was a different cultural context. We always have to keep that in mind. But, But I'd like to think that Luke had something more in mind when he wrote this than just trying to tell the women folk to get busy in the kitchen. The word used is diakoneo, and it's the root word that we get for deacon or a servant in the church in the book of Acts. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom. I don't think Peter's mother-in-law is portraying an unliberated, oppressed woman. To me, she's the first character so far in the story to exemplify what discipleship looks like. And this is something I think we tend not to notice enough. Yes, Jesus frees us from what oppresses us, from what holds us back. Yes, he heals our bodies, he heals our minds and souls, but for a purpose in this life. So this is the last thing I want to note this morning out of this, that the authority of God's kingdom empowers our lives, imbues our lives with meaning and purpose. The news of what Jesus did, it gets around to the whole town. And and so as soon as the sun sets, that is, as soon as the Sabbath time is over, people all gather around Peter's house and Jesus starts to work, healing them and setting everybody free. Now, again, I believe this really happened, but I also believe we're supposed to read into this something that's going on here, the meaning of this. It's not that just some people who were sick got better. There's a whole other dimension uh, involved in this that I see revealed in in Peter's mother-in-law. Because in that time and place, illness carried a heavy social cost. 
not only did it prohibit somebody from being able to work and earn a living, which, you know, there was no, there was no government uh, assistance and there was no stimulus check coming back in first century Israel. So not only were they inhibited from being able to earn a living, but, but they'd also be unable to take up their role in the community. Something else that was a vital part of a person's sense of well-being and worth. Everyone had their role in the community to play. And illness would steal that place of honor from them. Their place of meaning within that society. So Peter's mother-in-law is a case in point. In that time and in that context, it was her calling and her honor to show hospitality to the guests that came into her home. This illness was keeping her from that, and she was cut off from what integrated her into her world. It robbed her of her purpose at that point. Jesus healing her of this fever restored her to a life of meaning and purpose as she understood it. And listen, we can take issue with the social expectations for women in that culture and time, but that's fine. But the point is still the same in terms of what it is that Jesus accomplished on her behalf and wants to accomplish on our behalf. Healing is about restoration to calling as well as just physical repair. And this becomes an important symbolism about the nature of God's kingdom at work in our own present lives and how it is that we understand our role and calling as the church. Jesus didn't heal us. He didn't just heal us from the effects of sin and death. He healed us for a life filled with meaning and purpose, a life with something to do, a life called to join him in his mission of advancing God's good in this world. I heard Craig sharing these stories this morning, and I've read stories before about missionaries, and I think about all of these incredible things that these people accomplish in in what seems like such a short amount of time. These were people that were enraptured by God's good news, and, and that motivated them to go and make a difference in the world where they were placed. That's what we're called to. Each one of us is called to that. Freedom, you know, freedom from something keeps its focus squarely on the past. I was freed from drug abuse. I was freed from uh, the, whatever sin it may have been. And it, we're always focused on the thing we were freed from. But freedom for something gets our eyes out there on a wide open horizon for what it is that God wants to do in and through us. You might go, well, you know, fine, Rob, that's that's fine for you to stand here and say. I mean, you obviously know what you're supposed to do. It's pretty obvious. But I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, service is the key. That's why that word was really important in there. Serving is the key. We live in a world with so many needs, needs for practical help, needs for friendship and belonging, needs for comfort and and friendship, needs for justice and freedom from oppression. There are needs all around us. And we don't have to go out and meet all of those needs, but there's going to be something that lights up when it comes to mind, when we think about it when we think about the, the areas of need that are around us, some place of service that we're going to feel a call to. Frederick Buechner once wrote, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. You know, we did a, we did a food distribution a couple weeks ago 
And that was something that Julie Jendam had had on her heart. We had been looking at ways in which we can put hands and feet to the gospel. And, and, and she just felt this strong calling that we need to figure out some way to, to meet the needs of, of, you know, hunger in food insecurity in our area. She was able to get, uh, connected with a group of, uh, a nonprofit group who's able to supply the food. They just need people who can put it in the trunks of cars and be nice to people. And so, you know, she worked and she and Janelle organized that and got that together. And I want you to know that two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, Julie Jendam got severely burned, three de- third degree burns on her right hand and on her legs. And yet two weeks ago, with bandages all over her hand, she was out there serving with a smile on her face because she was called to that, because there was meaning and purpose and value in her life expressed into the world through what it is that God called her to do. We, we sit so often in our society and in our world, so so contemplative of our own navels. And I think that God is calling us to something more beyond that, a life that's filled with the meaning of reaching out and, and approaching the needs of the world that are around us that are so desperate for the hope of good news through Jesus Christ, a hope that's been placed in our hearts that we were set free from the bondages before and set free for the service of the world around us. We've been healed from the effects of sin and death. We've been healed for a life brimming with all of the possibilities of the kingdom of God, a life which is joined to the mission of doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the evil one. So let's spend some time this week in prayer about that. Let's take a look at the needs of the world around us. Like I said, we're not going to fix everything. No one person can. But, but let's look around the world and imagine what God's power would look like addressing those needs that we might see. And then let's imagine ourselves as agents of that power. Let's ask God to guide us and and illuminate our thinking as the church so that we can be instruments of heaven here on this earth. We can do this because we've encountered the authority of God's kingdom through Jesus of Nazareth. And our lives will never be the same because of that. So let's show the world around us what it's like and what it, how good it can be when God is in charge of it. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, please? And Father, we just ask you, Lord, to, to, to bless this word to our hearts. It's, it's so easy for us, Lord, in a world like we live in, where we are showered all day long with information and news. Father, I pray that this good news will transcend all of the other that will cut through the static and begin to inform our hearts and challenge the way we think and challenge how it is that we live and behave and interact with our fellow human in this world. Father, come to us now. And I pray that you by your spirit will enlighten us and enlarge our understanding of what it means to be a child of God and a follower of Jesus in this world. Anoint us for service, Father. And through this people here, make a difference in this world. Let your authority and let your kingdom come. Let your will be done 
on this earth like it's done in your heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.